coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. We cover some fascinating new research that's able to steal your phone's pin using nothing more than the onboard sensors. Then we can cover how computer security is broken from top to bottom. And Dan does another one of his famous deep dives, this time using everybody's favorite database, Postgres. Plus, we've got a rip-roaring roundup, your feedback, and so much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Welcome to this week's episode of TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This episode was streamed live on April 11th, 2017, and is brought to you by our three excellent sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. My name is Wes, and joining me this week is our host with the most, he's the admin, the organizer, and the explainer, it's our friend, Mr. Dan. Welcome to the show, Dan. Good evening, Wes. Good evening, audience. Ooh, wonderful to see you. Thank you for being a sport. Today's been a podcast adventure, but uh, now we're ready for our favorite show of all time. It's TechSnap. Now, I did listen to your show before. And what did you think? I have a, it reminded me of two things. Oh, two excellent. Things? Let me see. Yeah, there are three things that I wanted to bring up. My second job after university with, was with a company called Paxis Consulting. They were in Wellington, New Zealand. And the first client I had with them was Taranaki Farmers. Taranaki is a province, uh, a region in New Zealand. And it's up sort of uh, west, west side of the North Island. Okay. And I worked in a small little town called Howrah which was um, really a, a, a retail farming center. Um, they had um, a store called Taranaki Farmers, and I worked on their retail system, which was in COBOL. Ooh. And your past show was talking about COBOL. Yes, and we were. People who, who still know COBOL are... Are, are they in demand? Surprisingly. I don't, work, I don't think I want to work in COBOL again. But yeah, are <laughs> yes, right. you... I last used COBOL in about 86, I think, I feel 1986, like, wow. so 30 years ago. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. What did you think of it? It was very straightforward to me. It, mm. it, it made sense. It was very easy to follow. There was some very uh, esoteric things that you had to learn about how it worked, but that's the same with any language. It's yeah, right. not hugely different. Certainly. So there's a lot of great memories from living there. I lived in Wellington, but I drove up there first thing on Monday morning and stayed there and drove back on Friday morning and then did all my admin stuff back in the office. Oh, nice. Uh, Friday afternoon. But it was a great place. Um, and the other thing you mentioned was Slack. No, sorry. Yes. I prefer IRC. <laughs> and building versus buying. I'm starting to do a lot less building because I'm running out of time and right. space. So and I feel so like some things I'm buying. I, I feel like we've also entered a world where, I mean, as we talk a lot about on this show, like it's a more dangerous internet than it was 10, 15 years ago in terms of mm -hmm. if security, how, how aware you need to be, the number of people who use it and your services. So I feel like maybe in the past where you could stand up your own system or service just for yourself or, you know, for people visiting your tiny little, little blog where it was really it was it was easier to run for yourself but now like the standards have been raised so that like if you want to do a really good job of providing yourself this service you have to 
put a fair amount of effort to be able to compete even just for yourself with some of the services that for you know you might be able to buy at a reasonable rate and places like Google are a whole lot better at doing right they have a lot more engineers online they have big data sets to leverage yeah exactly and and if you're just hosting your own mail it's not that expensive and if you're buying it they're not harvesting they're not right scanning your mail yes so. and sometimes not exactly right like in a, in this era of advertising based things or you know customer where the where the customer is the product then yeah you know when you do enter into business agreements then at least you might be in a position where you have a few more rights that you can leverage and i was tempted to I'm still tempted. I, I, I'm hosting my own uh, IMAP server, but okay. I'm letting someone else do my spam filtering. Oh, so interesting. Th- they do my MX, then forward to me, and I, I start on my own IMAP server. And now I'm tempted even to... Uh, I, I've looked at fully hosted services mm-hmm. lately, and I'm also thinking about going to... Um, uh, instead of a traditional file-based IMAP server going to a database-based oh, IMAP oh, server. that would be interesting, yeah. Um, I've never tried that, but that seems like a logical progression. Yeah, I don't have any time to do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <sighs> well, speaking of time, we've got a pretty excellent show coming up today. Uh, I think we should probably just jump right in. Yes. The first story is, I mean, it's really interesting research, but it's also a little scary. Um, tell us more. Um, when I first read it, I figured out I, I had a good idea of what they were talking about. But um, m- most cell phones nowadays have um, a little motion sensor. It's right. not really a motion sensor. It's more, I think of it as a gimbal. Mm-hmm. That, that's not the proper word, though. Is it? It's like a, it can tell the orientation of the phone, the direction it's moving in. and Like a little gyroscope thing that can register the yep. offsets as you change the angle. Yep. So that, that that's why when you pick up your phone and look at it, it lights up. Right, yes, right, exactly. It, it can detect it, that it it's changed its that. orientation and the G-forces. And why when you look at your watch, it lights up. Um, but what they... Th- think they can do now with pretty good reliability is figure out what buttons you're pressing based on the vibrations that go through the phone. Wow. So when you tap it here, it, you know, depends how you tap. That's kind of, that's, that's crazy. I mean, it, ma- it makes sense. Get, but when you get to the end, I know a simple way to defeat this. Oh, excellent. Even better. That's my favorite kind of story. So. It was a team of researchers at Newcastle University in the in the UK. Now, um, in the show notes, there's an actual link to the PDF. Uh, what I'm reading from is, is uh, the TechCrunch article, article, and there's another um, uh, link in the show notes to the Eureka Alert, Eureka Alert um, post, which is even more interesting than this one. So, this team was able to crack four-digit pins with 70% accuracy on the first try. That means that 7 out of 10 of you are giving away your password. And 100% accuracy by try number 5. Now, it, it, it has to be stressed that this is malicious code. This, this is not something that you would install willingly, but someone can install this code on there somehow and wind up getting access to your password, uh, well, your passcode. Um, 
the the PDF goes into actual versus perceived risks on this topic, and I think everyone should read that before they start getting worried about it. So, a site accessed with malicious code can open the device to such sensor-based monitoring working in the background when the browser tabs are left open, and it can just, you know, you tap in your pass, you lock your phone, you tap it in, do that four or five times, they'll know know what your passcode is. And then later on in the night, they come in and they steal your phone and they break into it and then replace it back to where they left it, and you never know. It's a great movie. So, uh, that's great. It, it, it could happen. I think it's very unlikely, but it could happen. Um, so mobile companies, that the researchers report that mobile companies will no doubt be hesitant to block access required for this functionality initially intended for the sensors because they they don't they don't want to do that. And I'm I'm pretty they never mention a platform here, but I'm quite sure they're talking about um, Android. They never actually mention it in the in, oh, interesting. in, in yeah. this post, um, but in the PDF, which I have not read fully, but it is a very interesting PDF, and I encourage everyone to look at it. We've got um, that linked in the show notes. Uh, uh, it's in the show notes. Now, I remember years ago seeing a very interesting um, access panel, and all you did when you typed in your PIN it was not a keypad. It was like your phone. It was electronic. So there are no physical buttons that you pressed. But it was recessed, so you couldn't actually see it if you're slightly offset from being straight in front. Oh. You had to look straight at it, and the positions of the keys were randomized. That's an interesting idea, yeah. I mean, so, so that, like it's easy enough for your brain to kind of decipher it in, in a relatively quick manner, but it prevents yeah. exactly this kind of attack. It prevents this attack totally because they have no way of knowing what keys so you press. What kind of device was this that you that you saw this on? I I vaguely remember it. I just remember seeing it and thinking that's very, very clever. And this is 10, 20 years ago. Yeah. At okay. least. Um I believe it was an uh, uh, a panel on a wall next to a door for access through that door. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. And I don't remember where it was or what it was, but I just remember seeing it. And I've always wondered, why have we not seen this since? Yeah. Because it's such an easy thing to do. And it seems like uh, a really good balance of usability and security, right? Like, I feel like, especially on the... You know, in a, in a door situation where you're like, okay, security is paramount, it's easy to make concessions there. But I feel like, you know, mobile manufacturers are a little loath to do some things if it's going to, like, off-put the marketability of their product in exchange for security, which, unfortunately, consumers don't always value. I think that's changing. But that seems like an easy thing where, like, you can still look at it and do it. It's not hard if you just, you know, stare at it for two seconds, but you can gain some real security. You can be shoulder surfing, and you can tell just... You don't have to see the phone. You just have to videotape yeah, right. yeah, the exactly. positions that the fingers go to. And you can got, infer it right from that. You, you've got the pen. Yeah. So why not do something a little bit better by making it so that you can't see the numbers? Yeah. 
I mean, and shoulder that, surfing. That makes a lot of sense, right? And especially in this world where we have so many CCTVs and other types of activities. If you know, I can imagine a world where you have camera footage of your suspect, and they had you know typed in their pin on that camera footage, and then later are taken into custody. People yep. want, want to get access to their phone. They can review that footage now, and then you know it's over. So much for being able to protect your your private information. It. It's such a simple thing. I'm surprised nobody has has done it. I haven't yeah. seen it anywhere. Why why can I not enable that on my phone just to randomize it around? I mean, a lot of people have muscle memory. I mean, I, I changed a significant password today, and I'm still typing it, typing the new one <laughs> yes, slowly. Right, exactly. I'll yeah, get there. but that it, it's just muscle memory, and yeah, randomize it so that people have to slowly think about it. I think that's you, a very practical suggestion. You'll 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 speed up in time. It's mm-hmm. also a good ma- brain exercise. Yeah, so, and it may be a good incentive as well, or another like um, as a secondary benefit, having it. You know, having that kind of easy muscle memory where it's never changing may make it easier for people to use phones when they're otherwise distracted, driving, or other situations. And and maybe this would prohibit some of that as well. And but then there's um. Unlocking with fingerprints. Yes, that's true. That is uh, ever becoming more common these days. So, oh, by the way, some, some I think we covered this earlier, but if you're ever in a situation where you may think your phone's about to be confiscated, power it off because it requires a pin to start it up again. Yes, I think that's. A, I'm, I'm glad that they, you know, that's kind of been there since the beginning. I'm, I'm really glad that uh, the OS developers had seen that. It's a very reasonable precaution and provides a lot of. You know, a little extra security for not that much hassle. Anything yes. else you would like to add about this story? Um, I want to see someone uh, do that, uh, come up with an alternative keyboard for typing in your PIN. Yeah. I wonder if there's any, um, I mean, probably not on iOS. I wonder if on Android, like, are there hooks there? Is there something that people can develop? Or will it take, like, a custom ROM or other things to be able to customize that level of the interface? Apple should do it. Yeah, there Just we go. Do it. Listen to Just us. Do it. Yeah, we talk about you guys enough. Come on. Come on. This is a two-way street here. Send right. us samples. I think that's a natural segue into our first sponsor that w- this week, and that's our friend over at Ting. So if you're concerned about phone security, you're thinking, oh, boy, this news, that's kind of that's kind of scary. Ting is a mobile service provider that's, that's trying to make mobile make sense And as part of that mission, they let you bring your own device. So if you have a phone, you're like, okay, this is the phone for me. I know I can make it secure. This works for me. Ting has both GSM and CDMA. So just bring your phone right over. Most phones work on the Ting plan, and they have a handy IMEI checker. You can give them a call and ask about your device to find out if it is compatible. And once you're switched over to Ting, oh boy, are the benefits great. No contracts or early termination fees. Just, they're just truly and completely contract-free. There's no, there's no BS. There's no sign on the dotted line, sign away the next two years of your life. And to complement that, it's pay for what you use. That's right. You don't have to decide ahead of time how many minutes do I need. Uh, I don't know. How, many, how much data do I need? Uh, I'm not sure. On Ting, it doesn't matter. You don't have to know. Just use what you need. Pay for what you need. Reasonable prices. It's very upfront. There's no gimmicks. There's no crazy plans. No bundling or ride-along services. 
you just get what you need. There's no overages. There's no penalties. There's no having to worry about, uh, if I don't get that much, then am I going to be constrained? Or if I get too much, then am I expending extra money? No, exact. On Ting, you pay for exactly what you use. Just click this. Go over go over to techsnap.ting.com. Click this What Would You Save button. There you'll find their awesome rates page. Wonderful little boxes. So each line starts at only $6 a month. That includes voicemail, caller ID, tethering, hotspot, three-way calling, call forwarding, and all the other part features that you expect from a modern-day phone plan. Then you just kind of click the box. How much do you want to use? Well, I don't really use minutes. And I certainly don't use text messages. I mean, come on. So then it's just data, right? You want a gig of data? That's just $16. So my monthly bill is $20. $2. And if you go to techsnap.ting.com, you'll get a $25 service credit, which will more than likely, if you're anything like me, pay for your first month of service. Or if you don't have a phone that you want to bring, you can use that $25 service credit to shop devices. Go over to ting.com slash, oh, techsnap.ting.com slash shop. There you'll find a whole bunch of devices. They're unlocked. They, you know, they have both GSM ads and CDMA. They have hotspots, the whole thing. Ting makes it super easy to get started. They have a lot of great phones. Works with iOS, works with Android. Whatever you need, whatever makes you feel secure, Ting is ready to help you. Plus, they have awesome customer support, an amazing app, a great website. You can do anything you need for your plan from both the app or the website. But if you do call their customer support, you'll talk to a real person. You'll get great help, and they'll make sure that you get the great service that you need. So don't waste any time. Don't go with one of those big carriers that forces you into contracts that just aren't right. Pay for what you use over at techsnap.ting.com. Huh. Okay, so we've just heard a little bit about how phone security is broken. Turns out, more than just that. It's all broken. Uh, Top to bottom. That's Everything's broken. Everything's broken. Um, this next article is from The Economist, and I used to read The Economist back in the late 80s, early 90s, because I worked for a bank and they had a subscription and they would circulate it around the office. (laughs) That sounds like a nice office perk. It it was. And one of the interesting things that I I learned at that time is, um, you know how, you you know what a byline is, but Mm -hmm. a lot of people may not. It's the thing at the top of the article that says, gives the date and who wrote it. Economist has no bylines. Everything is collaborative. Nobody is attributed. You know, I just read a, I just read a, a blog post or something about them talking about why why that is and you know why they feel that it helps enable them to have good journalism. Um, yeah, and, and I think that's interesting. Yeah, well, nobody's trying to go for the glory or you know right. they're all just working to improve the article I, I i like that a lot and they also highlighted you know that, that a lot of times it is a you know it is a collaborative effort it's not just like hey mm-hmm. this person wrote yep. it it's like the whole team we've all given input we've all edited and shared so i like yep. that and they have a lot of i've often found their humor very interesting they have a lot of very funny things in articles not necessarily this one but yes i agree it's a little dry they, but it's but it, it is quite oh, amazing yeah. It's very good. So, on to this thing. The, uh, the article starts off by giving a whole bunch of examples of things that have happened. And I'm just going to run through them because a lot of readers, uh, listeners, will remember this from previous shows that we've done. So, the title of the story is Computer Security is Broken from Top to Bottom and Why Everything is Hackable. 
And as the consequences pile up, things are starting to improve. So it starts talking about how in February, thousands of point-of-sales printers and restaurants around the world began behaving strangely. And they turned out photographs and picture, well, pictures and various messages. And for the love of God, close this port. But when the hacker God gave an interview to Motherboard, a technology website, he claimed to be a British secondary school pupil by the name of Stack Overflow. And we talked about Stack Overflows last week. Yes, we did. Now, uh, I'm doubtful that he is a, a, a secondary school pupil. Uh, sometimes it's to their benefit to say that that's who they are because it makes it all the more elaborate and makes for a good story. I mean, um, we're talking but, about it, aren't we? Yeah, we are. So, uh, in February of 2016, cyber crooks stole $81 million from the Bank of Bangladesh. I think we I think we covered that just briefly, and they would have gotten away with it not for if it, not for a crucial typo, which held it up for some reason. Then it got reviewed, and then we we saw uh, NSA uh, its hacking tools are leaked all over, and then the CII had the same thing, and then uh, a, a software tool was used to flood uh, Dyn and and take them out, and also affect. Twitter and Reddit. Right, the Mirai bot that we talked about that, um, yep. and it was also covered on the last version of this show. Yep. And uh, the U.S.'s DNC Democratic National Co um, Committee's email servers were hacked, and then all that information was leaked. Um, and so it's just so easy to go out there and buy stolen credit cards, and, and they're sold in batches of thousands at a time. And um, data dealers are there to sell exploits and flaws in code um, that allow you to subvert the systems. You can buy ransomware. Um, these salespeople are so sophisticated that they will also supply coding skills. Sorry, coding skills are entirely optional, but if you need them, they'll supply them. They'll sell you botnets. And like a legitimate business, the bot herders will, for a few extra dollars, provide te technical support if anything goes wrong. Do you want to be on that helpline when they call in? No. <laughs> Yikes. That's 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 kind of terrifying. That's like the worst part of this whole article now for me. It's a business. Yeah, it's a business. Exactly. We, we've covered that before. Mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, vulnerabilities and exploits are a business, and there's a lot of people making a lot of money selling stuff that makes the rest of us unsafe. Exactly. Yes. Especially as, you know, more and more businesses, um, you know, information systems really have become a crucial part. You can't have your business without that, and therefore you are at risk for exactly these kinds of things. And it's, it's more than just businesses, too. It's health and right. safety. It, it's water systems, it's sewage systems, it's so our whole plants. society now is dependent on these systems, and and, it, and I think this article has a good point. You know, and it's like for a long time we didn't we didn't really think about it in terms of security or you know always thinking about the kinds of risks or the threat vectors that might be happening. A lot of it was new. A lot of it was like you know we've slowly cutting edge systems that have evolved over time. But now we find our place where we have legacy systems. We have a whole mix of systems, and not all of them were designed with security first. Later on down here, um, there, there's a bit about security and the early internet. 
and uh, it's a story that I did not know about. Oh, interesting. But we'll get to that. Excellent. So, this is the paragraph that I found interesting. The default, this is a quote, the default assumption is that everything is vulnerable, says Robert Watson, a computer scientist at the University of Cambridge. Now, I remember what Robert posting on his Facebook page that he just had a chat with the economist. And I didn't put two and two together until I got to this paragraph here. And I've known Robert since at least the first BSG can, which I think was in 2004, something like that. Someone look it up. Um, uh, but I knew him before then through the FreeBSC project, and he's been involved that, with that for ages, and now he, he's a PhD at Cambridge. So, Robert goes on to explain, the reasons for this run deep. The vulnerabilities of computers stem from the basics of information technology, the culture of software development, the breakneck speed of online business growth, the economic incentives faced by computer firms, and the divided interests of governments. That's really interesting. I like how, anyway. The rising damage caused by computer insecurity is, however, beginning to spur companies, academics, and governments into action. And he explains why it can be so complex. Modern computer chips are typically designed by one company, manufactured by another, and then mounted on circuit boards built by third parties next to chips from yet more firms. A further firm writes the lowest level software necessary for the computer to function at all. The operating system that lets the machine run particular programs comes from someone else. The programs themselves may be from someone else again. A mistake at any stage or in the links between any two stages can leave the entire system faulty or vulnerable to attack. Wow, that's, I think that's very prescient and well said. That's exactly what happens. Robert is known for being a clever lad. <laughs> Um, it is not always easy to tell the difference between a fault and uh, malice. Yes, absolutely. Peter Singer, a fellow at New America, a think tank, tells the story of a manufacturing defect discovered in 2011 in some of the transistors which made up a chip used on American naval helicopters. Had the bug gone unspotted, it would have stopped these helicopters firing their missiles. The chips in question were, like most chips, made in China. The Navy eventually concluded that the defect had been an accident, but not without giving serious thought to the idea that it had been deliberate. Because how are you going to test them? you got to fire the missiles. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that's not something to take lightly. Um, the, the next point in this article is just the vast size of the code. You got this little graph here. Is that on the page yet? If you can show this little graph, which is about a third of the way down to infinity and beyond, it starts talking about the lines of text and source code. There we go. And way over here, this is in millions of lines of code. So a simple iOS app is probably 100,000 lines of code. Do I, I'm doing the math right here. I, yeah, I, yes, I, I believe so. so. That's uh, two decimal places. Yep. So War and Peace is about... A uh, um, hundred thousand lines of code. Believe it or not, a heart pacemaker is more complex than that. Huh. It, it lo uh, oh, sorry. That's probably about uh, seven or eight, eight hundred thousand lines of code. The space shuttle, by comparison, uh, 
I'm doing this wrong. Oh yes, I see. Okay, so it's a yeah. yeah there yeah, we go. Yeah, They've yeah, got yeah, a logarithm yeah. here. It's it's probably about ninety thousand lines of code. That looks about so, right. So the iOS app is nine thousand lines, isn't it? Is that right? Yeah, not yeah nine thousand lines, because when we get over to the space shuttle, that's only probably about seven hundred thousand lines of code. Seven hundred, yeah, seven hundred thousand, because that's one million right over there to the right. So the Mars Curiosity rover has. Holy crap. Yeah, right. I mean, that's probably two, four million lines of code right there. Four million lines of code, yeah. And then you get over to Google Chrome, which is closer to nine million. Yes. And then a Boeing 787 is more like about 20 million. Boy, that's something you don't think a lot about, or at least I don't. But yeah, that's kind of terrifying. Well, it's not as terrifying as the fact that Mac OS... X 10.4 has about nine, nine, 90 million lines of code. And a Ford F-150 from 2016 <laughs> appears to me to have about more than 100 million lines of code. That's ridiculous. How can a F-150 have 100 million lines of code? Wow. Yeah, right? That that. I don't believe it. That's that's crazy, especially when it's you know when it's more orders of magnitude more than an F thirty five fighter plane. I suppose there's a lot more like interfacing with people, probably lots of code that doesn't always get run. That's there for like, you know, it pairs with this service and your Bluetooth and all all of those things and bloated OS decks. Yeah. But still, the just uh, the incidental complexity is incredible. Yeah, yeah. So, S someone prove it. I want to yeah, know. Exactly. Please give us more sources for this. So the next point they go to is the more lines of code you write, the more bugs you have. And that that's the problem. And the more pieces of code that fit together, the more complex it gets. And it's very easy to make mistakes. So I do remember the concept of uh, making a computer very secure and coming along the lines of making sure that you can prove that the code is correct. So uh, another story here that we covered recently. Uh, in February, researchers uh, at a Israeli university showed that they could get, get data out of a compromised computer by using the light that shows whether the hard drive is working to send those right. data to a watching drone. So you don't actually need electrical connection you just need a visual connection it, it was slow but it could work so ouch now here here's that bit that i promised you about early internet all of these programs sit on top of older technologies that are often based on ways of thinking which date back to a time when security was barely a concern at all this is particularly true of the internet which a tool Originally a tool whereby academics shared research data. The first versions of the internet were policed mostly by consensus and etiquette, including a strong presumption against use for commercial gain. For commercial gain sorry. So, when Vint Cerf, I hope I have his name right, one of the internet's pioneers talked about building encryption into it in the 1970s, he says his efforts were blocked by America's spies who saw cryptography as a weapon for nation states. Boy, the world would be a different place if that had been, um, you know, baked in from the beginning. That's 
45 years ago, yeah. 47, 40 years ago or wow. so. So thus, rather than becoming secure from the beginning, the net needs an additional layer, uh, an additional, a layer of additional software, half a million lines long, to keep things like credit card details safe. New vulnerabilities and weaknesses in that layer are reported every year. I, I really like the way The Economist has done this. You don't do not need any technical expertise to follow what they're saying. I was about to say that. Yeah, you don't need to know what TLS is or certificates or any of it. Just you just understand that like there are layers, and each layer adds a risk. Yeah, we know exactly what they're saying. Yes. We we know they're talking about SSL, open SSL. Yeah, exactly. Is, is that what you figured they were talking about? I did stuff? indeed, yes. Okay. So, another example that they gave, uh, a database belonging to Spiral Toys, a firm that sells internet-connected teddy bears through which toddlers Ooh. can send messages to their parents, lay unprotected online for several days towards the end of 2016, allowing personal details and toddlers' messages to be retrieved. Bum, bum, I, re bum. I think The Economist listens to TechSnap. Oh, I think so, too. You're probably right. Hello, dear friends at The Economist. They're, they're, send me a subscription. Exactly, yes. On top of the effects of technology and culture, there's a third fundamental cause of insecurity, the economic incentives of the computer business. Internet businesses in particular value growth above everything else. And if you've ever worked at a startup, that's exactly what they value. And that's exactly what the venture capitalists want. They want to see you growing, growing, growing. They're looking at the money at the end. And anyway. Right, and that's exactly how technical debt and other problems yes. end up happening. Yes. Ship it on Tuesday, fix security problems next week, maybe. I encounter that on a regular basis. I think we all do, unfortunately. And it's hard, you know, I mean, like, especially like, you know, ultimately, most development gets done at companies that are businesses that are obligated to make money. And so like, I can understand where it happens, but it's it's yep. it's something we all need to work on to make sure that the, you know, the repercussions and the potential liabilities are built into that, into the economics of that. I don't suppose you've ever worked somewhere where there was somebody like a, a rock star was working and they could do no wrong and what yes. they said went regardless of what the other people said in terms of this is wrong, it's a mistake. And someone that doesn't know any better says, well, just do it his way because he's been so good in the past. Right. And a lot of times those are people that, you know, it's like, they, you know, that's that's someone they can make the feature. They got the thing that the sales reps needed to market the product to the customer next week. That that doesn't mean that it was necessarily the best thing. Doesn't mean it's going to scale. Doesn't mean it's going to work. It exactly. just means that it worked for the demo. <laughs> Amen. So, going back, uh, I'm skipping over a section where they start talking about uh, liability. We've all read end user license agreements or at least the accept button yeah we've claimed to read them there's it's all legalese and it's all there because someone gets sued but the lack of legal legal recourse when a product proves vulnerable represents a significant cost to users if customers find it hard to exert pressures on pressure on companies through the courts you might expect governments to step in 
But Dr. Anderson points out that they suffer from contradictory incentives. Sometimes they want computer security to be strong because hacking endangers both their citizens and their own operations. On the other hand, computers are espionage and surveillance tools and easier to use as such if they are not completely secure. To this end, the NSA is widely believed to have built deliberate weaknesses into some of its favored encryption technologies. No, they wouldn't have done that, would they? Really? That sounds immoral. Couldn't be. Then who? No. The risk is that anyone who discovers these weaknesses can do the same. We've covered that many times. Yes, exactly. In 2004, someone, no authority has said who, spent months listening on the mobile phone calls of the upper echelons of the Greek government, including the Prime Minister by subverting surveillance capabilities built into the kit Ericsson had supplied to Vodafone, the pertinent, pertinent network operator. And we, we've said, if you provide a backdoor, someone unauthorized is going to use it. No doubt at all. Yep. You can't, you can't have a master key without risk, right? No master keys. So, in terms of... Uh, security, Google and Amazon are developing their own versions of standard encryption protocols, rewriting from top to bottom the code that keeps credit card details and other tempting items secure. Amazon's version has been released as an open on an open source basis, letting all comers look at the source code and suggest improvements. Then they come to very two great sentences. Open source projects provide, in principle, a broad base of criticism and improvement. The approach only works well, though, if it attracts and retains a committed community of developers. Right? That is key. Yep. So much software has languished and died because people lost interest. Mm -hmm. People will lose interest over the time, but I mean people as a group lose interest right. in maintaining it. Right. It's natural for, you know, maintainership to change from person to person with time, all of that. But it, what, what is key is that the community understands that the project is necessary and that people, one, the project's in a state that's possible for this to happen, and then two, that people can carry that stewardship forward and improve things. Um, uh, I forget who it was who declared that... Uh, I, I, hmm. A great, a great open source project is one that has gone through many regime changes, regime or governance changes, um, basically because they can evolve and, and exist without a core network. Right, yes. It just changes over. There's a yes. big enough group. I think that's one of the good things about the FreeBSD project is, is how, the, how, that's, how that's maintained, how flexible it is. I, I, I didn't want to say. Well, then that's what I'm here for. Thank you. So, one of the things that Robert's been working on, and I've, I've heard him talk about this, uh, uh, he, he's been working on, on security for a while. Dr. Watson has been using this agency's money to design Cherry, C-H-E-R-I, a new kind of chip that attempts to bake security into the hardware rather than software. 
One feature, he says, is that the chip manages its memory in a way that ensures data cannot be mistaken for instructions, thus defanging an entire category of vulnerabilities. We talked briefly about Stack Overflow. That wouldn't be possible with this. Cherry also lets individual programs and even bits of programs run inside secure sandboxes, which limit their ability to affect other parts of the machine. So even if attackers obtain access to one part of the system, they cannot break out the rest. We can have a web browser where every part of a page, every image, every ad, the text, and so on, all run in their own little secure enclave, says Dr. Watson. His team's innovations, he believes, could be added fairly easily to the chips designed by ARM and Intel that power phones and laptops. That's almost, It's like taking Chrome one step further, because each, each, each tab in Chrome is a separate entity, is it not? You can kill them off and not worry about it. Yes, each one is a is a separate process. So if you do mm -hmm. a, you know your your PS and you'll you'll see like oh yeah there's like a thousand Chromes running. I know I see that. Uh, Firefox has made made uh, some strides there as well as in their rollout of electrolysis as they call it. So they're they're Ooh. both working on that. Now, DARPA. DARPA is where the internet really started. They're the ones that said, hey, create a, uh, a network where if you take away nodes, it still works. And that's where um, TCPIP came from, I think. Or was that e Ethernet or DARPANET? DARPANET was the first one, and then Ethernet came out of that. My memory is foggy here. So another DARPA project focuses on a technique called formal methods. And, and this is where I remember proving that that code did what it said. So one of the things they were able to do, they developed formally verified flight control software for a hobbyist drone. A team of attackers, despite being given full access to the drone source code, proved unable to find their way in. That's a significant thing because that's software for flight. So... This is in 2013. I imagine they'd be able to do a much better job now. Yes, that's also another area we talked briefly about. Like um, Amazon has their own new SSL implementation, S2N. Uh, Amazon's been pretty involved in the formal verification space as well. Uh, so it's an it's an interesting area of you know trying to prove software correctness, hmm. especially where you can like simplify things you know to state machines or other constructs yep. where you can reason about at, at compile like, time. I like that a lot. Yeah. Pardon. So this brings us on to one of the very last things that we're going to cover in this, which is insurance. So you can actually take out cyber insurance, and it's a big market. It's 3 to $4 billion a year. And as a cost of insurance mount, companies may start to demand more from the software they are using to protect themselves. And as payouts rise, insurers will demand the software be, to be used properly. But it is the issue of software makers' liability for their products that will prove most contentious. The industry will fight any attempt to impose liability absolutely tooth and nail, says Mr. Grossman. So, changing, changing to another uh, quote here. And I do think that that's pretty good. I mean, can you imagine liability for an open source project? It couldn't exist. There's no there's no one behind it to accept it. Yes, right. And I mean, it would be a dangerous 
and I think worse world if, if that's what we came to expect in terms of open source, right? Like right. not that there shouldn't be, but just well, we like can't MySQL, all... you, MySQL, you've got Oracle. Yes. Postgres, you have literally nothing. Yeah, you've, you, right. You've got an open source project. You've got people who have committed, but you don't have. There's no. There's no legal entity that you can say, "Hey, yeah, totally." That scares some people, but I don't see why. We can sue someone if it goes wrong. Well, if you sue someone because it went wrong and your business tanks, well, you're stupid. Yes, exactly. You're, I mean, you have to design that into your process, into your architecture, as well as I think that, that that's one area where I see open source pairing well with consultancies, where you can you can then have firms that can do you know security analysis and give you a little bit of hedge your, hedge your bets or at least have something to, you know, know yeah. that you're at a good place and you can hire people to help you build the, the system so that you use that open source technology properly. Now, to, to dodge any feedback about me using the word stupid, what I'm getting at is you sh your business shouldn't fail because of a single piece of software failing. There's a whole lot of stuff that you're using and you hire the good people that know how to do the right thing and you should be fine. Um, you, that's what disaster recovery plans are for. Um, but no, the, I, I, I can't see open source projects providing liability insurance. I just can't see it going there. Not at all. And I think it's, like, I mean, it's dangerous in the sense of, not that it's a bad thing, but like in many other areas, um, that might stifle, you know, if you if you start expecting those things, then you need a lot of capital, you need a lot of things to to have that in place, which might then stifle the company, the number of companies that are able or, or yes. projects that are able to play in that space. It's a barrier to entry. Exactly. Yes, very well said. That's yes. exactly what I want. Um, last bit here. Kenneth White, a cryptography researcher in Washington, D.C., warns that if the government comes down too hard, the software business may end up looking like the pharmaceutical industry, where tough, ubiquitous regulation is one of the reason is one reason why the cost of developing a new drug is now close to a billion dollars. There is then a powerful incentive to the industry to clean up its act before the government cleans it up for it. Too many, too many more years like 2016, and that opportunity will vanish like the contents of a hacked bank account. I like The Economist. I really do. That was so good. No, I think and, that's. I, I think that's right. I think that's a. It's a great summary, especially for laypersons, people who yes. aren't concerned with this, people who might not watch yet watch TechSnap. Yes, e everyone who has relatives is saying, you know, what is this about computer security? Why is it so easy? Get them to read this, and then let them ask you questions and get back to us with the questions that they're asking you, so we we see what non-technical people yeah think that would be, about that'd be very article. interesting yeah i think it also highlights just how complex our current stacks are especially when you compare something to like i mean maybe not the ford f-150 but like a car from 20 years ago you know that was perhaps reliable simple in many ways yeah the internet and the computers of today they're not like that i mean no right no one person can understand an entire computer let alone even an entire processor or yep. all of the protocol sometimes and there's no com there's no computer in those old cars. Yeah, right. They, yeah. Ju they just they just ran. Mechanical principles. Ran. Yeah, exactly. Yes. <sighs> Interesting. Well, that's kind of terrifying, but I think it did a good job of highlighting some of the improvements, some of the ways that people, you know, that we are getting better at it. 
and hopefully the economic incentives there at the end for companies to embrace it. And I think, you know, more articles like this, programs like ours and others that can highlight, you know, that can make security become part of the product lifestyle, become something that consumers, you know, will use their vote with their wallets to use. That That's something that we need to see to help this change. So that companies really, it's really in their financial interest to take security seriously. Yes. Anything we'll else that you goes. would like to add to this guy? I'll be interested in any future articles I have about this because this was their cover story. Oh, interesting. That's great. I, I like that a lot. It was. Well, excellent work. Thank you, The Economist, and thank you, Dan, for finding this excellent story. If you take security seriously, you probably take a lot of other important aspects secure, seriously as well. That brings us to our next sponsor this week which is our friends over at IX Systems. So if you need a new secure NAS for your home office, for work, or you have bigger needs, check out ixsystems.com slash techsnap. What is IX Systems? IX Systems is the hardware provider you wish you'd heard about years ago. They have an excellent partnership with Intel. They ship all the latest and greatest Intel processors. They have wonderful partnerships with all the different hardware vendors that you might need, and they build open source, you know, hardware that supports open source, unmatched anywhere else. If you're thinking about buying a new server and you're like, well, I could go with a big box store, I could go online, I could, you know, try to click through some stuff, try to make sure that I understood my needs, how many IOPS do I need, what kind of connectivity, oh, but I'm, I need to make sure I have, you know, this many PCIe expansion slots and it has to fit in, fit in my 2U rack mount. That is exactly the place where IX Systems is your perfect Partner, IX System has a team of talented sales engineers. So just give them a call. Don't, I mean, go browse their website, check out their blog. They have tons of interesting stuff. They're awesome community members, but just give them a call, start a conversation, start a dialogue with IX Systems, and they will be, you'll find some people who are fascinated by technology, fascinated by open source, who understand security, understand servers, understand deployment, understand the whole life cycle, and are going to be excited to work with you to design a secure, modern system to meet your workflow. Plus, IX Systems, you know, you'll find them at conferences. They are super involved in the OpenZFS project. They work with, they are responsible for the FreeNAS project as well as TrueOS. So they understand open source. They've been around for many years. They understand the kind of workloads. Plus, they have a ton of great sponsors. If you go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap, you'll find one, a great, a great guide for buying hardware for open source technologies, but regardless of your needs, go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap, check a look, take a look at some of their, the people that they work with, right? Like LinkedIn, Groupon, Splunk, Tumblr, Hitachi. They have some of the biggest names here, petabytes of storage. They're, they are masters at these big data solutions, but not at big data Prices. That's the thing. IX Systems, because they view things holistically, they want to work with you to understand exactly what you're needing. They don't want to oversell you. That's not in their interest. What they want to do is form a partnership so that you can trust them and they can trust you and you have real people that you can talk to. You're not, you know, when you work with IX, no matter your size, whether you're a giant company or a government agency or just a mom and pop small business, they treat you first rate. They want to make sure that you get the server that's that, you know, that works for you, that fits for you in a way that you understand, right? So make sure that it has the software you need, it's configured right, has a full support system. Every, you know, that 
right there on their website, storage, servers, and solutions. Solutions is really where IX Systems excels. They want to work with you. They want to make sure that you get the hardware you need, the configuration you need, the awesome Intel processor that you need, the security that you need. It'll all come ready to go, just what you want. Don't waste any time. Go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. And thank you to IX Systems. <clears throat> I was just reading that PDF about the... Um, yeah, that's a great tap, PDF. Tap, tapping. Um, there have been some security fixes done. In fact... Oh, wow. iOS 9.3 from March a year ago. <clears throat> Safari took similar countermeasures by suspending the availability of this motion and orientation data when the web view was hidden. See, that seems like a very reasonable start, right? I mean, if the tab's not open, if I'm not interacting with it right now, yes. Yes. it shouldn't have access to those APIs. You can't get access to it. Yeah. So. I think that's a, you know, that, that's a great thing. It's a long-standing problem, and how we, how we solve the problem of accessibility, ease of use, not having to click through a thousand things just to get the website to work, but maintaining our security, I think it's an open issue, something that we'll have to keep covering on this show. And on this show, in the past week, we had more feedback than we have in any other show. Ooh, so either people are happy with us or exactly the opposite. There, there were no complaints. Hey, okay. They, were, they, they, they weren't saying, hey, you did this, you did that. <laughs> so maybe those people have given up. <laughs> I suppose just, that's a good thing. We just did nothing wrong. Or we did nothing wrong. I have a hard time believing that, but I'll take so, it. So there were requests for deep dives on Postgres uh, DNS, ZFS, and jails. Ooh. And I, I went and I brought up this book from years ago. Nice. Oh, look at the crab. That's great. I know how old it is because it's got the old street address that I lived in in, in Wellington, New Zealand. So I know it's at least so-and-so, but it, it's pre-2001. Wow. Oh, that's great. It's like a relic now. This one, the printing history goes to 98, so I probably brought it in 99 or something. Right. And I don't know where I was when I bought it, but this is the book that I read to figure out how networking worked and how DNS. Um, really, DNS, is. I learned from here, oh, I found some uh, highlighter in here. We'll have to find it. Where to go? But I recommend if you're new to networking or doing your own DNS, anything like that. If you want to learn about net networking, anything to do with TCPIP, read this. Yeah. There's also a, a base. It used to be called the Red Book. It yeah, was right. Systems Administration. Read that as well. It's a very good book. Some I think especially stuff, with networking, like you really need to have your mental model of what's happening correct, mm -hmm. so that you can then, you know, not every situation or every network configuration is going to be described in the book. So if you have that, then you can actually start reasoning about the systems you're really going to interact with. Yeah. Like TCP IP over a serial line, not many people need to do yeah, that. Right. Anymore, so. But if you understand yeah. the fundamentals, you can. Yeah. So it goes into um, send mail and debugging TCP IP and stuff like that. But basically, I, I, I would read it uh, if you're starting out I would read up on the network services, DNS, and network servers and just see how those go. Um, but the systems administration handbook, which I thought I had. You'll have to find maybe it. Only, maybe only. I was, look, I was looking for a different book here. I don't remember what it was, and I found this one. But anyway, um, 
read that book, get started. But in the meantime, I want to talk about Postgres. Just do oh. a brief overview of Postgres because it is Postgres, Bicol, and FreeBSD are my three most right. favorite things. We've talked a, a fair bit about it, but kind of only hinted at it before. You know, we've mentioned it. We've done the little feedback questions, but we haven't. it has never been a topic on the main part of this program. No. So we're not going to get... We're not going to get really deep. This is just sort of when you do start using Postgres, you'll remember this talk and say, oh, yeah, I remember this. I remember this. And it won't seem as scary. Um, my f my first encounter was po with Postgres was when someone said, hey, listen, you should have a look at Postgres. It has the stuff you need because it was it was 2000. I was living in New Zealand. I was working on fresh ports the website fresh ports and I was designing the, the database that went behind it because you, you think it's not very complex, but it is very complex. Uh, if someone wants to find the fresh ports, uh, data model, it's huge. It started off as just four or five entities, but now it's, it's huge. I have to have a tool to keep track of. Oh, yikes. Wow. Um, but, I, I know I've stated before that I was uh, I, I came from a background of uh, big professional databases like DB2, right. um, uh, I can't, Sybase, can't think of any of the others, but I was using them. And when I started using MySQL, which was the database uh, of choice back in the late 90s, um, I started playing around with it and said, oh, it, it doesn't have relational integrity or, oh, it doesn't have stored procedures. Oh, I can't create a function. Oh, that's what a null date looks like? Stuff like that. So someone said, try Postgres. And I tried it and I had the stuff that I wanted. It's a database I recommend. Um, I just, it's very solid. It's very reliable and it treats your data very, very well. And I think a big, a big component for me has always been that it's you know, it, it, it takes ACID seriously. It's it's standards compliant. Uh, MySQL has not always been so great on some of those things. So it's nice to have an open source database that, that yep. really, it's first class. It, MySQL is improving. Yes, but certainly. I'm sorry, you, you, no. <laughs> I, I, I use it. Yeah, sure. I absolutely not, use it. Not, not my database of choice. I also, for me, um, a lot of like the JSONB stuff in, in Postgres, like there's a lot of times where... Um, you know, if you, a lot of times Postgres can can be your NoSQL database or other type applications where you don't, you know, you can have one database, one code base that you understand your administrators administrators already know that can have a diverse piece in your application. Mm -hmm. um, and I use it for just about everything, like uh, the websites that I have, like BSDCAN and PGCon. The database behind them is Postgres. Um, I, I would use it on my WordPress sites, but I think we covered that recently. WordPress doesn't really support Postgres right. at the moment. Um, now, I included my ninth, my year 2000 uh, original blog post, and as I was scrolling through it earlier today, I actually noticed that I updated it later that year to do backups. And then in 2001, I started talking about upgrades, uh, up upgrading from 703 to 713. And then in 2002, 
I talked about uh, improving performance, and that was interesting because that performance was minuscule compared to what I was talking about. Like going from six, a six, 600 millisecond query to a 0 0.6 millisecond query. Wow. And that was wonderful. But it's interesting to see how, how, how much it's changed over the years. Um, the default super user um, used to be PGSQL, and now it's Postgres. That only recently changed. Right. Um, so what can I say about Postgres? It, it's, a, it's a traditional client-server bit. Um, you can talk directly to it uh, if you're on lo local host through through um, a lo local host socket. You don't have to go go out through TCP/IP, or if you're coming in from another machine, you can go over SSL. It's easily um, enabled. In fact, I was supposed to be doing that this afternoon on a server, but I got sidetracked. Um, when, after you install it, you, you have the concept of of the data directory, which is data dear, all in cap cap letters, and that's a, an environment variable that is often used. Um, the first thing you have to do is initialize the database, which is basically you give it template zero, template one, and I always forget which one's which. One is one is in, um, immutable. You can't change it ever because it's what it uses for to create new databases. But the other one you can change and add your own own things to it. Now I don't recommend you do that. That's really advanced. Don't do it. I'm just saying. Uh, other things you can do is you can say create me a new bit database based on this database, and that's an advanced feature too. But Okay, so forget about that. So you do the init DB, and then you start the database server, and then it's up and running. And you can connect to it through the command line utility called PSQL. P PSQL? Yes. And you, it should just connect on localhost if you've got it listening on localhost. Um, but if you become the... Postgres user, which is either PGSQL and older versions on FreeBSD or Postgres, then you can just I issue commands. Um, there are command line utilities uh, like create user, all one word, or create DB uh, that'll allow you to create create users that can can connect in and then create databases. Um, it has a similar concept to traditional Unix, where you can create a group and add permissions to that group, and then add people to that group. So, um, for example, today I was creating a group which allowed uh, you to connect to this one database and read from this one table, and that's all you could do. You couldn't do anything else. Um, so uh, that's done in w within the database itself with commands such as uh, create user or create role. Role is sort of like a group. And then you can create a user and add them into a group or a role. And then if things change, you need, need to add more permissions to everyone in that group, you modify the role, not the person, not the user. So the users have various roles that they can perform. Um, and that's like a, that's, I think that shows one of the many ways where you know, it's battle tested, right? Like these, those are kind of like the maintainability things where you don't want to be having to update a whole bunch of users' manual permissions to make sure that, you know, you separate someone from your company. You, to up, 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 you know, if you have roles, you can like, 
All right, this is that class of user. This is developers. They need read only so they can, you know, grab uh -huh. data, whatever. Mm-hmm. The website can only read. The back end can write. Yes, exactly. For example. Yeah. <clears throat> and what I really like and what I encourage everyone to do is not to write SQL for your application. Write functions that your application invokes and put the SQL in the functions. Because then if you have to change your tables or redesign them, you can just change your function and you don't have to change your application at all. Tips for pro young players. Okay, do it that way. Don't write SQL in your app. Sure, that's you can say... That's really right. interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's that seems like very practical practical yep. advice where you can have another layer of abstraction there so that like, yes. this is the feature and I need. I don't care how it works underneath. You yes. make, just make sure it works. And it's very low cost, too, because instead of saying select star from table where this equals that, you say select star from function right. or select function bracket parameters, close bracket. And then if things change and you have to add in more parameters, you can say the old ones have default values like this. Yes. It, it provides ways to, to migrate to the future without having a bunch of breaking changes. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. That's very good advice. Um. And then it also means that, that the, you, you can do a lot of changes in the back end and never have to reissue a new app. Because if you say, oh, I want to add in this other table, oh, how am I going to do that? I got to get a new app. But no, if all you've done is, is, is changed how you do things and nothing that is presented in the app has changed, do it all on the back end. You'll have a much better time. Um, so... Functions, create databases. Mm, I can't remember what the other thing I was thinking of. The, the best advice I have, though, is when you're, when you're doing this, figure out the easiest way for you to do a backup and do that backup religiously because one day you are going to wind up deleting data that you did not intend to delete and you're going to do it from the command line. Get into the habit of saying begin, semicolon, enter. That does a transaction. Then even if all you're doing is reading, you can select the stuff that you want and look at it. But if you're doing any sort of updating, do your select first, look at the data you're about to change, then issue the modification command, then look at the data again and see if it looks like what you wanted to do. Then if you're confident, issue the commit. Because sooner or later, you're going to accidentally delete a whole bunch of data. Yes. Better still, create a user that you connect as that has read-only permissions and do your queries that way. Then there's no chance that you're going to accidentally delete stuff. I think that's a really that's really good advice. I also think transactions are huge, especially if you have you know, a web app or anything where you have concurrent access to the database and you really need to make sure that you have, you know, consistent state changes. Um, also, one thing I've really liked about Postgres, it's just like it really makes it super easy, you know, if I want to have like, I have these read-only users and I just want to make sure they can only have this many connections and they can only last this long and, and those kinds of things so that you don't have users who are just, yep. you know, select star from giant table all the time. Yeah. Now, there's something called a pghba.conf file, which is the host-based authentication. So you can set restrictions on incoming connections. It's right. sort of like a firewall, but not exactly. Like this user so can you, only come from these hosts or only local right. host or, or right. whatever. Yeah, so I've used that before, yeah. 
you can have a host or a network and a database name uh, and the type of connection they're allowed to use. So like from localhost, you can connect in. You don't have to use SSL on localhost. But this user, if they're coming in from that host, they must use SSL. Yes. Or no like if you do have some things that are, you know, like, okay, well, this user is the backup user. He can see the whole database, but he can only auth from that one host over there where we take the backups. Yep. yep. Exactly. So you can do all that, that sort of stuff in PGHBA. Um, I, one of the great things I like doing is using PHP with Postgres, believe it or not. And a lot, I know people who have, there are some people out there that have a very bad uh, uh, feeling about PHP, but I use it every day. Anyway, that's that's, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> now, um, I think that's about it. There was something that I thought of. You were talking about granting access. That's about all I wanted to cover on Postgres today because there's just so much to cover in this great documentation. You, you go into the website and you look for the command you're looking for and you can say, okay, well, that's the documentation for 9.2. What about the documentation for 9.3? Is it the same? And you can just click back and forth between the same pages in the document for the different versions. It's a great feature. I wish more documents had that. Yeah, no, I think I think you're totally right about that. Any uh, Anything you want to point oh. people to uh, oh, yep, go on. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, do you anything you want to point people to for good learning resources or, or anything else? Um, the Postgres website has really great documentation. There's a conference coming out. <laughs> it's my conference. I run the conference. Full PG disclosure Con. here. PGCon comes up next month. PGCon.org. Go and have a look. Um, it's in Ottawa in May. The week of May twenty third, I believe. I also think um, um, Postgres is a great thing. Like it's used by a lot of companies, corporations, open source projects. So if you're at all interested in databases or in web development or backend development or anything like that, you could do a lot worse than learning more about Postgres, becoming skilled in Postgres, going to conferences and meeting people who use Postgres. You'll find a huge selection of you know of tech people there. There's a uh, IRC channels nice. on Freenode. They're very useful. The mailing lists are great. The documentation is very good. Um, one last tip. Uh, I'm about to set up a, a server, and the Postgres database will go in its own FreeBSD jail. Uh, I'll do that so just so that it's in a separate container. But then if I go to upgrade, I can install Postgres in another jail and dump it from there, load it up in the other one, get it all ready to go, and then just go, boom, swap swap over from one to the other. And it's just a configuration change in the web app to say, don't talk to that host anymore, talk to this host over here, and, and you're done. Um, I'm looking forward to that because I've done it once on another server, and I really liked it. It was so much easier. So do you... Um just as some follow-up questions. How, do you have yep. much experience with like stuff like uh, PG pool or other things for managing user connections? And I'm also interested in like, have you, do you, do you do much for like replication or, you know, um, primary secondary kinds of setups? Uh, 
I did play around with Sloney for a little while. Right, yeah, Sloney, yeah. Um, but I I have not bothered setting up any replication for Postgres or any for um, fresh ports or anything like that. It's always ju- I've always just felt it's easier just to maintain one website and have it going. Right, and if, if you have I your ha- backups, then yeah. you should be fine. I've got backups. I back up every day, and um, the data that goes into it comes from a mailing list, so I can always get that data uh, again. Yeah, right. Uh, People will lose whatever changes they did that one day. But yeah, I could replicate to another location easily enough and just have it up to date all the time. I could replicate to another location on the same box and then replicate to somewhere else. But it would still take a long time to copy that data over. Um, I haven't played around with wall log. Uh, um, wall is a write-ahead log. Uh, I haven't played around with... Um, log shipping, which is basically you have two databases. Uh, as you update one database, you write to a log of what you did, and then you ship that log off to another server and then execute that log on the other server so that you have the same thing going on, only one is slightly delayed. And that can sometimes be useful because if, if something happens and somebody deletes all your data, your other server is about half an hour behind and you can stop it. And then just play everything up until the point of where the, the before the data was deleted, and you're back to where you were. That's a great point. All right. Anything else you'd like to add about Postgres or things people can do? Use Postgres, not MySQL. <laughs> you heard it. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Uh, all right. So with that, I think that brings us to our last sponsor this evening. That's our friends over at DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean, they're the simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easiest way to spin up a brand new cloud server in under 55 seconds. Whether you want FreeBSD, any of the very popular Linux distributions, or, you know, maybe you want OpenBSD or Arch Linux or something else that, you know, requires a real KVM hypervisor to go, DigitalOcean is the easiest by far quickest place to get that started. You know, whether you want, you're building a new kernel, you need a CI box, you just want a box to test something to throw it away, or you need a server for your Quassel instance or for your personal blog or as a backup server where you could, you know, do backups. DigitalOcean makes it so easy. Go to digitalocean.com, use our promo code SNAPOcean. That, my friends, will get you $10 in service credit. You know, and... Their droplets start at $5 a month. Yeah, that's right. $5 a month. You get 512 MB of RAM, 20 gigs of SSD disk, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. That's right. 40 gigabyte E right to the hypervisor. This is real bandwidth here, people. Not some of that like, well, it's a terabyte, but you'll never get there because we cap you at like 50 megs. Ha ha. No. DigitalOcean takes it seriously. They have beautiful data centers. If you go follow them on social media, you'll see that they take, they you know, they take their infrastructure seriously. They have a lot of very talented people working for them. They have data center locations all over the world. New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Frankfurt, and Toronto. So pretty much wherever you need, you can find a DigitalOcean thing. They've got the OSs you need. They've got the features you need. They've added a lot of things to compete with, you know, compete with any of the other cloud providers. They've got monitoring, load balancing. They've got, you know, block storage, pretty much up to whatever size you can need. It's all backed by SSDs. They've got private networking. They've got snapshots. Plus, they have a great API that they, they, you know, their site, it uses the API. Their app, it uses the API. Any of the other apps 
or open source command line utilities or websites or anything else. It all uses this great, simple API. Plus, we were just talking about Postgres, right? Well, one of the huge things about DigitalOcean is their community, right? Right there. You see it right at the top of the page. Community. They have awesome docs made by community members, but DigitalOcean hires real editors to make sure that these docs are consistent, up-to-date, and top-notch quality. So look at this. They've got like a whole bunch of Postgres tutorials. How to secure Postgres against automated attacks. How to set up a Django project with Postgres, Nginx, and G-Unicorn on Debian 8. So these are all popular. Some of the first things you'll see if you Google DigitalOcean and I think that, that really goes to show that DigitalOcean understands the market, they understand their users, and they understand open source and, and the projects that are important there. Right? I mean, they pay authors $100 to $200 for technical tutorials. So you know, if you like DigitalOcean, if DigitalOcean enables you to do the projects that you want, you can go contribute. You can go help make it a better community for everyone else. Go to DigitalOcean.com, use our promo code SNAPOcean, get started with, I mean, at $5 a month, that $10 promo code, I mean, that's like two months for free. If you're anything like me, that'll get you started, then you'll be hooked, and uh, you'll have like five DigitalOcean servers running this day. So thank you, DigitalOcean, for sponsoring the TechSnap, TechSnap program. Our promo code is DO Unplugged. Oh, but nope, that's the other show. It's SNAPOcean. Either <laughs> way, support the Jupiter Broadcasting Network. Go to DigitalOcean.com, and thank you to DigitalOcean. And that brings us to this week's feedback, the section of our show where we get to hear from you, our wonderful audience members. What, what kind of magical feedback do you have for us this week, Dan? Well, as I mentioned earlier on in the show, we got more feedback. Did we say it live or did we say it off air? We basically got more feedback in the past week than we have in any other week, and I was impressed by that. Um, that makes me very happy. That's wonderful. Thank you, audience. Do you remember the um, last week a guy wrote in asking about this free DNS service? And right. we sort of said, is, is he writing in because he wants a free ad? Turns out, no. He had stumbled across and he wanted to know what he thought about it. He, he hmm. wrote in again. That makes sense. Well, I thank believe, you. I believe, I believe him now. Yes. It really and, helps to have that narrative continue. You know, it's like instead of a one-off, it becomes an interaction between us and you guys. And that's that's really what we want. No, it isn't. Oh, sorry. Yes. 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 Yeah. Yes, right. it is. Right. You're right. Sorry. I forgot I was still on that. Um, and there's a lot of requests for deep dives. I think people like the deep dives. And I spoke with Alan about that. And he said, yeah, the, he, he always enjoyed doing it and always got a lot of feedback on it, positive feedback. Awesome. So some people enjoy one part. Some people enjoy the other part. Yes. And we'll, try to, we'll, we'll make see. sure we try to mix it up, you know, so that... It's palatable to everyone, but I, I do agree, and I think, you know, in-depth technical coverage, um, something that you might only otherwise see at, like, a conference or other event, you know, where it really, you know, you have more than 20 minutes or 20 minutes of something where you can really, you know, get into the details, really understand something. That's that's rare and hard to find sometimes. And I don't think we went very deep on Postgres. It was just very, right. very brief. And so we'll, we'll see what the feedback is on that. Like, yes. There's a particular aspect of what you're trying to do. Let us know. Same with Bacula or FreeBSD jails or something like that. Uh, um, it's best not to get too specific to your situation because then it, it it's right. more of a feedback thing rather than going in on a deep dive. That's a very good point. Yeah. All right. So uh, should we start with uh, start with this feedback then? Yes. Excellent. Okay. So first up, let's see here. 
Christopher is writing to us about building a PFSense box. Hey guys, I love everything you guys put out at Jupiter Broadcasting. Ah, thank you, Christopher. I'm currently using an ISP-provided modem slash router combination, and I'm tired of its minimized settings and would like to run my own router. The only issue is that I don't have a whole lot of spending money, so I was considering picking up an old junker from somewhere, adding a second NIC, and loading PFSense onto it. What do you think would be the pros and cons of doing this? The first thing is make sure you can do that. Um, I'm not sure what he means by a router because sometimes the router is a thing that has the coax plugged into it. And if you're like me, my, my ISP supplied router is in bridge mode and it just passes straight through and then it goes into my PFSense box and that's the real firewall gateway. And I want to make sure that using router in that term of firewall gateway. But if you just replace the modem router with, with your own box, it probably won't work because unless they're supplying Cat5 to you, it's not going to work. Um, so check that bit out first. But if you do want to get an old junker, it'll be cheap to get but more expensive to run. Newer boxes uh, have more efficient uh, power supplies. Right. And if you go on eBay, I saw PFSense from NetGate for about $130. And these are just little boxes like that that just runs runs off a 5 or a 12-volt power supply. Right. And they'll draw less current than your laptop. Yep. So there's a, there's a lot of options, right? Like you can go, like NetGate has a lot of great PFSense stuff that's supported right out the box. Um, there's also some other platforms. If you're willing to put a little more work into things, you can find some hardware that supports PFSense or just FreeBSD um, or mm -hmm. Linux, you know, that that is on ARM or other things that can have, you know, sufficient performance. Yeah. And there is the option of using an, you know, an x86 system, like you're talking about, that will use more power, but it may be easier for you to acquire and, and a little bit more flexibility. That's what I'm, I'm using just to just a PC that has, you know, a, a dual port Intel gigabit NIC in it, and that's my router right now. And, and honestly, it, it was an old 386, might have been a 486. I think it was a 386 that I got started with. And so there's 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 no shame in using one of those to get started with. Yeah. But nowadays, I, w I wouldn't use it. But back then, when you're just starting out, yeah, try that. See what happens. The worst, you know, it's a junker box. So. Exactly. And I think it depends a lot, too, on, you know, Christopher, like, how much is this you want it to be like a, a finalized appliance that you, you set up the once, you don't ever have to configure, it kind of just runs, or is this like a learning box for you that you want to play with, tear down, rebuild, interact with, that might influence your decision. Mm -hmm. Yes. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Christopher, and uh, let us know what you decide and how it goes. Up next, Alejandro writes to us about a suggestion for a simple inventory and change management software. I have a lot of random equipment, PCs, laptops, switches, consumer routers, that I use for experimentation and testing purposes. I find that I often install an OS on one of these computers to run some test and soon after move on to another project. Could you please recommend an open source, easy to use app that I could use to inventory this equipment and more importantly, keep track of what modifications I made, usernames, passwords, config file info, etc., on each device. Your thoughts, Mr. Dan? My first thought was a wiki or a blog. 
Um, but I'm happy to see what other people are using. And the reason I suggest a Wikirear blog is because that's what I do. When I get, whenever I get a new FreeBSD host, I always create a uh, a page in the blog that has the the disk partitions in it, the file list of file systems, the D message output, um, all that sort of stuff in terms of oh, the box is down. Oh, what drives did it have in it? Oh. Uh, how are they partitioned? It's all in that blog post. Um, if you want to keep passwords and something like that, you could keep it in your blog post if you wanted. Um, I have a spreadsheet for MAC addresses. It's just MAC addresses, and it, it's basically all the, all the machines that I have, the MAC addresses that they use, and then I have another spreadsheet just for VLANs. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, so that makes sense. Ba ba basically, it... it it, it's a table. It's VLAN numbers across the, the top, um, devices down the left-hand side, and then, uh, oh yeah, um, port numbers of the switch down one side, VLAN names across the top, and what devices hooked into each one. Um, now, you could make a really nice database of that and just pull that information out and put it all on one page, but It'd be a good. It'd be a fun thing to, to to develop, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't do it. I'd just keep the separate uh, pieces of data. Um, if you're going to do a blog or wiki, just have one page to each item and document what you have in there, and that that may be the easiest thing for you to do because you probably don't want this stuff to be public. So a blog may not might sense may not make much sense but there are wikis out there which are totally self-contained and so you, you you pull up you pull up a web browser and you start playing around with it and you save it uh it right. may even have versioning right it can be totally internal to yourself you don't have to yeah. you don't have to share it with anyone right um the other thing i can think of is is just it, it's it's not i mean i wouldn't call it inventory um but he might find that uh, Ansible works well for what he wants to need to do if he can if he can make the shift from changing it on the server to having you know one code base where he makes all his changes and then pushing those changes out to servers. Yeah, I'm not sure if all that all of that can get changed. Someone just said something. You know, I, I was just thinking like it, I know I know I've seen Ansible improve a lot of support for switches and other devices. Uh, to be able to manage them. And I know it's helped yeah. me in the past to be like, okay, well, I have these systems and I have them in my manifest. And then, you know, yeah. this is all the software that I want on each one. And it's a little more declarative than than, than other options. Um, but that is, but he also wants to cover switches and, and routers and stuff like that. Yes, it will depend so on, no on what you have. Yeah. Um, Rekai mentions Spiceworks, which might be overkill, but it is free, he says. So, have a look at that. See if that helps. And if anyone has something similar, write in and tell us. Ah, here we go. So, it looks like Ansible's getting some support. Here's a, a blog post from 2015 about getting Ansible to talk to your Cisco devices. So, I've never, I have not played with that. I have no idea how it works, but uh, you wrote, may have some... On, some, uh, some. I, I worked for Ponte, a company that is sort of no longer around but we wrote software for upgrading appliances such as Cisco routers and switches and stuff like that. Not just Cisco, but various objects. Yeah. And basically, yeah, you would have a firmware update and you'd shove it out to your 5,000 devices. Inter that's inter very interesting, yeah. So it's... 
Excellent. Hi, Ansible. Come talk to us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, all right. Well, thank you, Alejandro. That's uh, that's a good question. Um, I know I've seen a few things. Uh, it was called Netbox. Like it depends. There's like you know different things. Like there's there's software that manages. Hey, you know, here's all the IPs I want to allocate and the VLANs and subnetting and that sort of stuff. There are tools like RackDB or other things that help you manage. You know, this is where my servers are and, and logical models. Oh, what's happening good over news. there? Good news. My MacBook Pro is shipped. Oh, so it's coming back to you. It's coming back. Excellent. So you've been I'm, doing this. I'm so. Yep. E- got a message on from eBay. Sorry. So you've been doing the show with just one laptop, right? Since your, your uh, other one's shipped away? Well, two laptops, but not my work. No, not, not okay. my not my MacBook Pro. So it's coming back. So, yeah, yeah, it it is more difficult to do it with. Um, I'm borrowing my work laptop, and what I can do on it, um, both from a uh, an ethical point of view and <laughs> a security point of view, is limited. Right. So, yeah, when I have two personal laptops, I can. Free range. Much more, yeah. Free range. Excellent. All right. Well, uh, thank you, Alejandro. Let us know what you decide, what works for you, and uh, we'll be curious to to hear more about it. And our final piece of feedback this week is from our friend Steve. Steve writes in about RAID Z1 with Hotspare versus RAID Ah, Z2. Yes. I've been listening to TechSnap since it first came on the air, 300 plus episodes ago. Boy, that's crazy. Uh, I gained valuable insight listening. It augments my reading nicely and is much appreciated. Hey, Steve, you're very welcome, and we appreciate you. My question is this. I have ZFS on Linux, and I've had it for several years. My pool started off as a 4 by one terabyte hard drive in a RAID Z1 and has since grown to 4 by 4 terabyte drives through replacement. I'm looking at upgrading my drives again in the future, but I started to ponder data loss since the drives are getting so large, i.e., the possibility of a second drive dying while resilvering is happening. I don't have the funds to break this up into mirrored pairs, so that leaves me with this. Do I dump the data off to other media temporarily and rebuild with RAID Z2, or do I go with RAID Z1 and a hot spare? I realize that the hot spare leaves the data in somewhat the same situation, but it gives me some small breathing room in the event I am away from home for an extended period of time. I had read a while back that hot spares don't work well in a BSD environment, although this info was circa 2013, I assume it is still not possible to upgrade from RAID Z to RAID Z2. Thanks for any advice you may give. This is very good. Yeah, I think this is, this is a great question and great feedback. No, you can't just upgrade from RAID Z to RAID Z2. Um, they still have that um, technical issue about extending the number of columns you have, have in the RAID. Um, people say that's a liability, but I seem to make it work, and so do a whole lot of other people. It's a very particular use case, and if you need the ability to keep adding stuff, well, there's ways around that. But that's out of scope for this. Um, I want to point out what he says on the third line there. An extended period of time, breathing room, that's exactly what redundancy gives you it keeps the system working when you've had a failure and that's what it does it buys you time 
And that's what I love about it is the fact that I don't have to have to rush around and get it fixed because I can still use the machine right. until it's convenient for me to get. You've get got this. that second layer of redundancy. <clears throat> you know, like, oh, exactly. something, yes. one thing failed. I have to go rush out, maybe take things yep. offline, go get my thing, swap mm -hmm. it in, rebuild, resell. Yeah, all of that. In, in, a, in a production environment, it's different. It, it keeps production running, right. but it means that you, you're not stopped. You can sometimes schedule a drive replacement mm -hmm. for when someone is next in the data center, and it's no big deal. So he, he says he has four terabyte. So let's assume he's going to six. I'm not really sure what he's going to, right. but let's say six. Um, and my first thought, and maybe this isn't possible because he's talking about other, other data temporarily, and it doesn't say how much data he was. He has four by four by four terabytes, so that's RAID Z, so you take one off. So he's got about, I think, eight or 12 terabytes of data. That can't be right. Um, what you can do, and what I would recommend, if you can get the hardware together, is I would install another HBA in your machine, attach all the new drives in there, format them, get them ready, and then do a ZFS snapshot send receive to the new drives, and then you have an exact copy. And you know, even if it takes three or four days to copy it over, you do another ZFS snapshot and send that over. I, I mean, it all depends on how many uh, file systems you have and how many snapshots you have to do. But and how much spare space you have, yeah. and, and all of that. Yeah. But you're right; that's a really that's a really great point because especially like after you've done that that first one after that it's really easy and, and should be pretty quick yep and eventually you get to the point of where it only takes a few minutes to snapshot over and then you, you you'll go the advantage to this is that your original data is untouched oh yeah that's nice so you try the new stuff if it works great you're done but if it doesn't work you still get your original and you haven't done anything to it I think the other thing that, that we should just bring up because we should always bring it up is, you know, the amount of degradation that you you're, you want your array to be able to handle and the time mm -hmm. to, that it should have is also dependent on your backup strategy and how, you know, yes. how resilient does this array need to be is directly connected to like how frequent your backups are and how much confidence you have yeah. in them. My latest backup destination is RAID Z3. Oh, nice. Wow, that's great. Uh, um, I think, I'm not sure. It's either 10 or 12 drives. I'm not sure. I don't remember. But it's on my blog if you want to look You're it up. You're making me drool over here, Dan. Yep. That sounds awesome. Five terabyte Toshibas. Nice. That, sound, that sounds beautiful. It's part of the reason why it's 88 degrees in here. Right. Yes. That stuff, uh, turns out, doesn't come for free. Yeah, either at expense or in, you know, actual waste heat. Well, I'll be turning. I'll, I'll be opening up the window overnight because I'm sure it's not going to rain. Leaving the window open, it's going down. I don't know, 40s or 50s. Ooh, I think tonight. That sounds very refreshing. But, oh, it's wonderful here first thing in the morning. Yeah, I bet. Right. Ooh, that sounds great. All right, so I, I think that that seems like a good answer. Uh, hopefully, that gives Steve enough stuff to work yeah, with. Do let us know what you wind up doing. Because uh, if we've misunderstood what you said, right back. Yes. I would also like to point out that there's some good um, 
ZFS calculators out there for if you want to calculate like differences by how much space you'll have available in terms of, you know, if you're using Z1 or Z2 or Z3, that kind of stuff. There's, there's some really handy, handy tools out there. All right. Well, that wraps up this week's feedback segment. If you'd like to submit feedback, head on over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. There you go. Find our contact form. Shoot us a, shoot us an email and we'll uh, almost certainly talk about it right here on the show. And that brings us to the last segment of this show. That's right, our Rockin' Roundup. These stories, we didn't quite have enough time to cover in the main segment, but we think we think they're interesting, they're important, and they're worth your time. So we'll just cover them ever so briefly. First up, a hacker sets off all 156 emergency sirens in Dallas. Wow, that sounds painful, Dan. Can you tell us a little more about it? Well, when I first read this, I thought it said 155. Oh, yeah, so, right. I, either the post has changed or I read it wrong, but I, I do think that, that it had gone. So basically, someone got into the system and it, it, it went for an hour and a half, but not an hour and a half constant. It activate, activated each siren 60 times during the night. Wow. So they started at 11.42 on a Friday and continued until almost 1.20 on Saturday morning. Yeah. So you can imagine people wondering what's going on here because they're primarily used for tornadoes and severe weather. And so everyone was calling 911 to find out what was going on, um, which in itself is an emergency. If you if 911 gets inundated with, with, fate, with non-emergency phone calls or things such as this, it can block real stuff, real stuff that needs an emergency response. Right, exactly. I mean, an outage of the 911 system, that's that's life-threatening by its very nature. Mm-hmm. They don't know who did it, but oh, they, wow. assume, they assume the person is in the Dallas area. Yeah. This is exactly those kinds of things where it's it's on such that kind of, like, gray line. I mean, it's, this one's obviously on the other side of it, but, you know, those, especially for a lot of us technical-minded people, maybe you're a little... Yep. You know, you're like, oh, you're trying your hand at these things. You're like, oh, I have access to this. I can play with it. It doesn't seem like it hurts anyone, but it's like one of those easy things to overstep what you're doing and cause real harm to real people. Um, the 911 system uh, had double the calls for a normal eight-hour period. Double. Wow. So um, between 11.30 and 3 a.m., they received double the call double the number for a normal eight-hour period overnight. So I don't know if they've done the math right there, but I would say that they got four times the calls they would normally get in that period. That can show that people were uh, obviously concerned, right? Going up by 400%. That's non-trivial. That's not trivial. Boy. Well, uh, it'll be interesting to follow that and see if anything else happens. Oh, well, perhaps you are alluding to our very next roundup item right there. I am. I hate autoplay. Yes, don't we all? So I think this is really neat. Um, Alan Jude of former TechSnap fame. Go check him out on BSD Now and all the other wonderful things that he does. Uh, it looks like uh, Wendell over at Level 1 Linux has been interviewing him. I think this is really neat. Yeah, I liked it. Um, I haven't listened to it all. I just found it today, but I find myself referenced in the comments. <laughs> I think it's funny. And you can see his Tetris lamp in the background. Oh, that's great. Yes. So, yeah, 
anyone that's been listening to uh, Alan over the years will want to listen to this. This would be great. Excellent. Yeah, I hadn't I hadn't seen this either. Uh, so now I'm now I'm kind of glad, and I'm I'm definitely going to go put it on on maybe on the way home. Okay, should be good. So next up, this is something that uh, you said a, a coworker sent your way. Yeah, uh, when we were on the phone call today, uh, he he just happened to to mention it. He had seen it somewhere, and I really wasn't paying attention. But basically, it's a little. Um, like uh, access point, like a three gig access point that you sit there and it's your hotspot. Uh, apparently, it has a cross uh, site scripting exploit uh, where it will text you its username and password just in clear text. There you go. There's your access. Go. Oh, yeah. Look at this. Looks like a little like handheld TP link device, the yeah. 3G mobile Wi Fi thing. Yeah. Wow. I've thought about getting one of these, but. My phone does tethering, so I'm not really sure why I'd want that over my phone. Yeah, so. no, that's uh, that's fair. Um, I don't, I don't know if it's if it's relevant right now, but do you want to give a very brief overview of uh, cross-site XSS, cross-site scripting, and, and what it is? Basically, what you do is the input parameters are not sanitized, which is what you really want to do. Anytime you're taking data from an uh, an untrusted source, you really have to treat it very cautiously. And what it allows someone to do is feed it the right string, and it does something from another website, basically. Your website pulls code from someone else's and runs it, and boom, you're in. Exactly. Uh, my favorite part of this whole thing was the uh, reference to uh, Internet of Shit. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I think that's I think that's becoming a common term now. Exactly. Sadly, uh, sadly, uh, but it guarantees that us over here at the TechStep program will be around for a while longer. And there's a Twitter account called Internet. Yes, sure. there is. Yes, I which didn't uh, know that. viewers you should now. go follow, and uh, I think yes. you'll see some things that will end yes. up on this fine program. Yes. Okay, so I think that brings us to our final roundup item this week: building, building an ass and yes. getting it right. Now, they are using my card of choice. The M1015 HBAs, which FreeNAS community has been uh, pushing, not pushing, but recommending for some time. And it's it's what I use in a lot of my boxes. Um, they're basically a rebranded LSI card. And these ones actually use 2180s, I think, based on the firmware image I see here, here of 2180s. But basically inside, they're, oh, uh, it looks like it was a SAS... 9211 8i yeah but then the binaries you use for various things i've got various blog posts and um flickr or google images of, of how, how how to flash the cards but it is difficult here they go into a whole bunch of math i'm not sure why they're doing all these this math it's a huge article and i would just skip over all these bits that do all the math but if you want Unless you like LaTeX, because the math is very nicely typeset. Yes. And it does look like a nice box. It is what I think is a APC 2200. I'm not really sure. I didn't read to see what he's using. 
No, it's an APC 1500, which is uh, might be the same one. Yeah, APC 1500. So it's 500, 700 less than what I've got. But I bought a lot of the stuff off eBay. Um, so it's a good guy. Here's a working solution. If you want to start doing something, look at this. Read something like this. No, I think you're I think you're spot on. And this is an awesome guide for people that, you know, maybe you're technically savvy, maybe you're a developer mm -hmm. or doing yep. other things, but you haven't really delved into this world. You haven't made your own box. You're not familiar with ops or <clears throat> ZFS or anything else. And this is just like awesome. Like there's maybe too much information even for some people, but it has so much there. There's a lot to build on. And whether you need to go to this level of detail or not, there's a ton of useful information. Yep. I agree. This is very nice to have around to read when you go to build your own. Excellent. All right. Well, anything else you would like to add to this week's roundup? No, that's all. Thank you. One thing I would like to say, uh, it sounds like on tomorrow's episode of BSD Now, uh, Wendell, we just talked about, will be will be joining them. So uh, make sure you check that out. BSD Now is an awesome show, a friend of ours for sure. Uh, so go check that out. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode of TechSnap. This has been episode 314, streamed live on April 11th, 2017. If you would like to see more of this program, head on over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. There, you will find our archives, the previous generation's archives, and a ton of other awesome shows, including that BSD Now program we just mentioned. If you want to find out more, you can contact us there or hit me up at Twitter at West Payne or Dan. He's at TechSnap underscore Dan. You can also find the calendar. That'll tell you when we're here live. Come join the IRC room. It's a ton of fun. Submit feedback. Join in the community experience and make sure you come back. Watch next week. See ya.